Exodus chapter 35. We're going to read four verses. Uh, they're not uh, continuous here, but I want to read verses 4 and 5, then we'll jump down to verses 20 and 21. Uh, the Word of God says, Exodus 35, verse number 4, the Word of God says, And Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass. And of course, you can see in the text there that many, many other uh, materials for the tabernacle are listed. And then down in verse number 20, the Word of God says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came every one whose heart stirred him up, and every one whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation for all His service and for the holy garments. Let's pray together. Lord, I love You. I thank You that Your Word is inspired and infallible. Lord, that when we hold it in our hands, we hold absolute truth. Lord, not not obsolete teachings, but absolute truth. I pray that You'd encourage us tonight. I pray that You'd convict us tonight. Lord, I pray that You'd have Your will, Your desires, Your way in our hearts, in our minds this evening. Help us to be surrendered under the authority of Your Word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Exodus 35 and 36 list for us the materials that God required for the constructing and the rearing up of the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, the Old Testament tabernacle was God's meeting place with mankind. And never before in human history had God chosen a specific place and said, I'm going to put my name there and I'm going to meet with you there. And we are going to have a meeting place together here. Now, let me say to you tonight, I'm glad God meets with His people. Amen? I'm glad God has a meeting place. Uh, we don't worship a God that hides himself uh, behind the veil of the confessor's booth. We don't have a God that uh, hides himself away up on the moon or on a distant planet. We don't have a God that hides himself behind uh, uh, mythic and uh, mysterious and confusing tenets and principles. We have a God that desires to be near to us. Uh, so much that he constructed and, and instructed for the construction of a meeting place that mankind could meet with God. But, as with anything, if there was a work that had to be done, then there was a work that had to be done. And so God gave a list of what He required for the tabernacle to be built, how He wanted it to be built. And that ought to remind us of this, that God desires to meet with us, but God also dictates the terms upon which He meets with us. Amen? Uh, we've come to His house tonight. Not our house. We've come to His house. And uh, having come to His house, we need to meet God on his terms. We need to understand that our God is a holy God. And he has certain expectations and requirements as the human heart meets with Him. And so in Exodus 35 and 36, and actually it goes even further than that through 37, 38, 39, God lays out all the instructions for how the tabernacle is to be built. Now, uh, it's very detailed because it is actual uh, instructions. God gives measurements. God gives materials. God gives the manner in which it is supposed to be uh, built and the materials fashion. And uh, He's given these instructions to His people. Now, I want you to notice a few things about the work of God in this passage. And let me say this, that we have a work to do. Uh, God has called you and I to be busy about His business, His work, uh, His tasks. We get so distracted with the frivolous things of the world. Now listen, I understand we live in this world. And I understand to a degree we have to operate in this world. That doesn't mean we have to be consumed with this world. 
Uh, we ought to be consumed with the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be consumed with His ambitions and His aspirations and His desires. And our heart ought to be in such tune with Him that whatever He requires of us, we're willing to obey without hesitation. So I want you to notice three things very quickly, just a little introduction about God's work that we notice through reading through these chapters. And I trust you've probably been in this portion of the field before, but if you've not, I encourage you to read it later on when you get home. One of the things that we notice when we read through the instructions for the tabernacle, we can't help but notice that God's work is a holy work. Now, what we mean by that is this, that God's work is righteous. There is a right way to do things. There is a wrong way to do things. I was talking to someone just very recently, and there's a lot of pressure, especially on people that are my age and younger. I, I don't know if I'm a millennial. I guess I am. I don't know really what uh, age uh, demographic I would fit in. I'm, I'm very much uh, starting to feel less and less like one. But for people my age, we've been raised and conditioned to believe that all things are relative and that nothing is absolute. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Even though we know that not to be true, we still bear oftentimes the same weak and passive language that the world has conditioned us to have. You'll hear people saying things like this. Well, just, you know, whatever makes you feel comfortable, however you uh, see fit or whatever you think is right. No, friend, that's not the metric. The metric is what God says is right. Now, listen, I'm not standing up here saying my opinion is right, but I am standing here saying that when God gives his opinion, his opinion is right. And when we stand on the truth of the Word of God, uh, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be weakened in our position to such a degree. I mean, listen to, uh, to listen to a lot of people defend the Bible the way they do it is by apologizing for the Bible. Uh, that's not what apologetics is, amen? Apologetics is not apologizing. And a lot of people have that perspective. I mean, it's like they're almost scared to acknowledge what God says. Now, we ought to always be willing to speak the truth in love, never with a bad spirit, but we ought to be willing to stand where God stands. God is a holy God. There is right, there is wrong, there is sin, there is righteousness. God is on the right side of those things, amen? Uh, he, he is holy, and His work is holy. There was a way for this to be built that was right and correct, and there was a way that it could have been built that would have been wrong. And as such, we need to acknowledge in our life, whatever we're setting our hand to do when we're doing the work of God, be it serving and ministering the local church, be it uh, being a witness outside of these walls, uh, be it uh, us being the instrument of uh, God exhorting another believer or ministering the Word of God into someone else's life, whatever we're doing, there is a right way, there is a wrong way, and the Word of God will dictate and declare to us what is the right way to go about God's work. It is a holy work, and let us never forget it. It's a worthy work. I mean, listen, for us to be serving God is us living up to the original aspiration of God for the human race. You understand that many people float around in life uh, either not knowing their purpose or not caring about their purpose. But we as Bible-believing Christians, we are privileged and honored to not just be, not just be permitted to live out our purpose, but to be commissioned and called to live out the purpose of God in the human experience. And that would be that we live for the glory of God and that we do the work of God. So God's work is a holy work. Let me say number two, God's work is a hard work. It's not easy to serve God. 
Now, that's not to say that God doesn't uh, yoke up with us or us with Him and Him bear the burden. Listen, I'm aware of it more than anybody probably in this room what it is uh, to feel weighed down under the the weight and pressures of serving God and for God to come along beside you and supernaturally lift that burden and give you strength and put air in your lungs and uh, put a spring in your step. Listen, I felt God do that. But I also acknowledge this. He wouldn't have to do that if the work was easy in and of itself. Serving God is by its very nature a difficult thing to do. It's not complicated. It's not something that requires a great amount of intelligence. Amen? I'm proof of that. But it is something that we're going to have to buffet the flesh. And it is something that we're going to have to discipline ourselves. And it is something that we're going to have to put our hand to a plow. You notice that Christ used that language. Putting your hand to the plow. It is a work to be done. And that means it's hard work. It's not always going to be easy. Uh, again, I, I, I don't. It's funny because it seems like we always make these statements on Wednesday night. And if there's anybody that probably uh, doesn't need to be fussed at about it, it's the Wednesday night crowd. So understand, I'm not fussing at you. Uh, you you uh, buffeted your flesh so that you could be here tonight. It would have been far easier for you to stay sitting on the couch or kick back or recline. Uh, but you made the decision. And no doubt there were people that overcame great obstacles so they could be here tonight. No doubt there were people that went without supper so they could be here tonight. Not that, that, I mean, hey, listen, don't we sound soft? I could, I could stand to lose, uh, to miss a few meals, amen. But, but I'm saying that it wasn't out of convenience or comfort that you made that decision. You chose a hard decision because you believed it was right. When we study the work of God here in these passages, one of the things we realize is it would have took a lot of work to do this. Uh, they had to hew the wood. They had to uh, melt and refine the gold and the silver and the brass. They had to weave the cloths that were used. It took a lot of time, took a lot of energy, took a lot of effort. It is a hard work sometimes to serve God. And then I want you to notice something. I want you to run through some of these verses with me. And I want you to see if you notice there's a word that keeps popping up in them. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says, "...take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord." Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass. Look down at verse 10. The Bible says, And every wise-hearted among you shall come and make all that the Lord hath commanded. Jump down to verse number 21 that we read a moment ago. The Bible says, And they came, every one whose heart stirred him up, and every one whom his spirit made willing. They brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all his service and for the holy garments. Look at the next verse, verse 22. It says, And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets, all jewels of gold. Every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. Look down at verse 25. The Bible says, And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. Look at the next verse, verse 26. says, And all the women who, whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. Look down at verse 29. The Bible says, The children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. Look down at verse 34. Bible says, and he hath put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. Look at verse 35. Them hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work of the engraver and of the cunning workman and of the embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet and in fine linen and of the weaver, even of them that do any work and of those that devise cunning work. Look in chapter 36 at verse 1. 
The Bible says, Then wrought Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that the Lord had commanded. Look at verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even everyone whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. And then finally look down at verse 8 of chapter 36. The Bible says, And every wise-hearted man among them that wrought the work of the tabernacle made ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work made he them. Now, Here's why I read all those verses, because there's a word that keeps popping up, and I'm sure you probably noticed it, but it's the word heart. Over and over and over again. In fact, 14 times in the verses that we read, the word heart is found. And it reminds me of this, that God's work is a holy work and a hard work, but God's work is a heart work. He said, preacher, what do you mean? Well, it's something you've got to have your heart in. Now, some folks go through seasons in, in ministry and in life where they feel like their heart is not in it. And they want to give up. The answer is not to get up, to give up. The answer is to get your heart back in it. And the only way you can do that is by giving your heart back to Christ. Because wherever your heart is, if it's given over and yielded to God, God's going to set it to His work. And if our heart's not in the work anymore, it's because our heart is in some way not surrendered unto the Lord. Now, you don't have to understand that. You don't even really have to like that. But there's Bible truth for that. Amen? Uh, we don't like when, when we feel down on ourselves and discouraged. We say, well, my heart just didn't in it. We don't want somebody to come along and say, straighten up. But the truth is, that's what we need to hear. Because if we surrender our heart to the Lord, He's going to set it to a task and He's going to put it in His employ and put it to work about His business. doesn't mean you're going to enjoy everything about serving God. But it does mean that God will give you a desire to serve Him and to do the right thing. So the Bible says here that when they performed this work, they performed it heartily. Their heart was in it. You know, the Bible says in the book of Colossians uh, that we're to do all things heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. What does it mean to do something heartily? I wrote down a few words that I want to give to you before we jump into the message. Let me say, number one, that to do something heartily is to perform it willingly. Willingly. If your heart is in something, you don't have to be made to do it. Amen? If your heart is really in something, nobody ha- listen, nobody has to come behind you and check on you and make sure you're doing and serving and working. Oftentimes, when people have to keep our feet to the fire, it's because our heart's grown cold. If our heart is really in this thing, then we won't need a time clock to watch. We won't need a supervisor over our shoulder because we acknowledge that God's eyes are upon all and everything we're doing, we're doing not as unto men, but we're doing as unto Him. So to do it heartily is to do something willingly and to perform it willingly. Let me say number two, that to have our heart in something, to do it heartily, is to perform it personally. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, we we don't farm it out to someone else. When your heart is really in it, you want to have your hands on the task, and you want to be doing it yourself personally. I remember there were times when I was growing up, and Daddy was working on something, and I wanted to help him. And uh, I'd try to follow behind him, and I'd try to get in the middle of whatever he was doing. And sometimes he'd allow me to help, and he'd try to guide my hands. But when it came to a really important part, he'd make me take my hands off of it, and he'd put his hands on it, because he understood that this was important, and because his heart was in it, he wanted it to be done right. By the same token, listen, if we have our heart in something, it won't be enough just to write a check and farm it out to someone else. 
It's part of the reason I believe that missions ought to be a personal thing. We ought to know who our missionaries are. Because for too long, God's people, instead of just cut a check and then said, well, my job's done, and just forgot about it. Instead, we ought to have our hearts vested and knit together with the people that we're supporting and, uh, and helping labor in the Word of God. Uh, by the same token, anything that we're doing. And, and, and church, listen, as a church family... Uh, There's a tendency to get to a place in life, be it because of health, be it because of age, be it because of circumstances where we say, well, I just can't serve God. That's for the, uh, insert adjective here, crowd to do it. That's for the young crowd. That's for the healthy crowd. That's for the crowd with time. No, listen, every one of us as God's people ought to be busy doing God's work. Every one of us. Uh, There's no place that you should reach where you say, well, it's just not my time anymore. That's a good indication that you're not able to do it heartily. It's something we ought to do personally. Let me say number three, that to do something heartily is to perform it diligently. Diligently. Well, we'll do our best if our heart is in it. Second best won't do. Uh, Let me tell you something. And I, I don't know. I guess I should be over here telling the young people this. But if young people could understand this, that if you'll show up ten minutes early put in eight and a half hours of work when you're only paid to do eight hours, and do your job, you'll always have a job in this country. I mean, unless something just in a dire way changes. And one of the things young people, I mean, listen, you ought to see it. I remember being at camp one time, and every year at camp, you know, we assign camp cleanup, right? We will, somebody has to clean the dining hall after every meal, and we rotate it. So, you know, cabin number one will have to do breakfast on uh, Tuesday, cabin number three will have to do lunch on Tuesday, and cabin number seven have to do dinner on whatever it is. And, boy, you want to talk about seeing people do something their heart ain't in. You ought to see those teenage campers cleaning I mean, I literally, I've seen, I've seen teenagers like almost collapse over a broom. I can't tell you the numbers of times that I have had teenagers come up to me and, and say, I don't know how to sweep. And I take the broom and go like that here. Listen, I ain't stupid. Not as stupid as they think anyways. It ain't that they don't know how to sweep. Their heart ain't in it. They're hard, ain't it? They don't care. Now, I understand that teenagers cleaning up at camp. But the sad thing is, you and I as God's people, oftentimes when we put our hand to God's work, we're just as bad as those teenagers. We want to stick the broom back in God's hands and say, Lord, I don't know how to do it. When the truth of the matter is, we haven't even tried to figure out how to do it. That's not going to cut it. I'm just telling you, it's not going to cut it. I see it all the time in young men, particularly in ministry, that, uh, and I'm not, listen, I don't want to do anything to run down God's servants. But I've seen in young men in ministry, I'm talking about young preachers and young pastors, they want everything done for them. They don't ever want to take the initiative and step up and figure it out, amen? And uh, I, I like what one pastor said, uh, a good friend of mine, he was a youth pastor for a number of years, and whenever the old man of God hired him, that hired him as a youth pastor, he said, uh, listen, if you get stuck and you need help, come let me know, but don't be in my office every ten minutes, because if i got to do it for you, there ain't no reason for me to hire you, amen? And what he was saying is be diligent. Be diligent. Stay busy. Keep your hand at the task. If there's an obstacle, overcome it. If you can't overcome it, pray and ask God how to overcome it. But whatever you do, don't give up. Keep your heart in it and stay diligent. To do something heartily is not only to do it willingly and personally and diligently, but it's to do it passionately. Passionately. And that, I think, is what we most readily identify. When someone's heart is in something, they will have some degree of let's say, addiction to the ministry. You know, Paul said that to the church at Corinth, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry. 
And what does that mean? That they can't walk away from it even if they try. And as such, we ought to be passionate about the things of God. Hey, listen, we ought to get more excited about serving God than we do about any sports team, than we do about any Hollywood movie, than we do about any whatever, insert whatever drivel that the world tries to feed us. We ought to be more excited about the things of God than we are about anything else in our lives. That's to do it hardly, and I'll give you one final thing, and this will enter into our text tonight. Uh, To do something hardly is to perform it sacrificially. Sacrificially. If your heart is really in it, you'll pay what it costs to see the work done. And when I see the children of Israel in these verses, I see that at this stage in their heart, in their life, their heart was in the work of God. And they gave of themselves from their heart to the work of God in three areas. I want you to very quickly notice them, and then we'll close tonight. Look back at verse number 22. The Bible says this, And they came both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets. For those of you under 30, that don't mean a tablet like a electronic, amen? All jewels of gold, and every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. And every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hairs and red skins of rams and badger's skins brought them. Every one that did offer an offering of silver... And brass brought the Lord's offering, and every man with whom was found any shittim wood for any work of the service brought it. Let me say first off that because their heart was in it, they gave their treasures from their heart. Uh, Here's the truth. It ain't about money, but it takes money. Now listen, the offering's already been took up, so take a deep breath. But here's the reality of the matter. When we get hung up on money... When we get hung up on money, and this is true for a church, it's also true for, the, and when I say the church, I mean the church corporately, or it's true for the church individually, meaning, in other words, from the pulpit to the pew. When we get hung up on the money side of it, we're missing what God's trying to do in our midst. When the focus from the pulpit becomes about money, then we've missed God's desire and God's people giving. By the same token, when the focus from the pew uh, becomes a balking and bristling at the notion of giving and yielding uh, materially to the Lord, then we've missed God's intention by our giving. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need my money. But God chooses to utilize both of our goods for His glory. He privileges us to allow us to partake in that element of serving Him And He does so, not because He wants our finances, but because He wants our faith. And the finances is the means through which, for most of us, God can get more faith into our life. I know I've told you this. I know you're tired of hearing it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I know you've heard about the fellow that the devil decided he was going to destroy his life. And so uh, he decided he was going to take those fiery darts that Paul talked about uh, in the book of Ephesians. He was going to fire it right in the head and kill him. But he couldn't because he was wearing the helmet of salvation. He decided he was going to shoot him in the chest, but he couldn't because he was wearing the breastplate of righteousness. And uh, he decided he was going to try. If he couldn't kill him, he could slow him down. He was going to shoot him in the foot, but he couldn't because it was uh, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so he ran around the backside and shot him in the wallet, and he bled to death. The truth is, for most of us, where your treasures are, there your heart is also. That's true for all of us. And for many of us, God, in order to get to our heart, has to go through our wallet. Because we've placed such an idolatry on it. The children of Israel, they, they came and they gave. And I want you to notice two things. Number one, they gave their finest. 
So they didn't give iron. They didn't give uh, any type of, uh, you know, alloy or whatever they had access to. But they gave gold and they gave silver and they gave brass. And they gave, they only gave brass and silver as opposed to just straight gold because that's what God asked for. They gave their absolute finest. And we might say this. We could say it this way to us because we don't, most of us don't live in a time, hey, listen, your money's just as green as my money and it don't matter uh, what type of money it is most of the time. But we might could say it this. They gave to God their finest, but they also gave to Him their first. First place in their finances and in their goods. Second best is not good enough for God. He deserves our best. Now, He has set the precedent for this because He gave us His best. And nothing less than our best should be good enough for God. You know, the book of Malachi talks about a time when the children of Israel uh, began to slack on this issue. And they, they got to the place where they were given God uh, not just their second, but third and fourth and fifth best. And listen how God addresses this in the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. God says to the children of Israel, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? In other words, God's saying, you say that I'm a father, but you don't honor me. You say I'm a master, but you don't have reverence to me. And he said this, uh, Where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts, unto you, O priests, that despise my name? And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? In other words, the priests are saying, We've not despised your name. God says, You offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say that the table of the Lord is contemptible. Here, and I'm going to read just a little bit further on, but I want to pause and make this comment. When we give God our second best, we're implying that that's all He's worthy of. When we give God our leftovers, we're implying that's all God is worthy of. Here's the biblical mandate. And we get so hung up on on the 10% thing. I would say this. As you look at the New Testament model, the Bible says that they gave according as God had prospered them. And I think most of us could acknowledge that God has prospered us far above what our giving is typically. Uh, so I don't believe that's a, a, an excuse or license to say, well, I'm going to give God less. And I believe if our heart's in the right place, we're always going to try to give God as much as we possibly can. But let me just say this, that, that when, when we give God what's left over, we're implying that's all He's worthy of. When we prioritize Him low down the totem pole, see, God God is wise, and God is perceptive, and God discerns, and God understands our hearts, sometimes even better than we do. And the fact is, we can say that we're giving Him our best, but He knows what's in our coffers. We can say that we're doing our absolute best, but God knows whether it's true or not. And when we do not yield to God our finest, we're implying that He's only worthy of whatever metric and level and measure that we're giving Him. And this is what the Lord says to him. He says, If you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? In other words, he says, You're finding the sickest, most pitiful animals out of your flock, and that's what you're giving to me. And then he asks a very pointed question. He said, would your secular obligations accept that? Uh, I understand we live in a time where most people work outside the home and they have obligations. That's not lost on me. Listen, I understand that. I even understand, and preachers don't like to let folks in on this, but I understand it is easier for you to lay out a church than it is for you to lay out of work. I know that. I understand that. There are less unavoidable material consequences for laying out a church than there are. Now, there's far dire spiritual consequences. 
but there's less material, you know, next day, got to figure something out, going to feel the pain from it, consequences. Listen, I'm aware of all that. that. That's not lost on me. But the truth of the matter is this. We ought to be in substance and in passion giving more to God than we ever give to the world. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. They gave of their finest, but then I want you to notice they gave till they felt it. Now, if you thought that first point was rough, just wait and hear this. They gave in a way that they would notice. Notice again what it says that they gave in verse number 22. And some of you women can testify about some of this. The Bible says, And they came both men and women, as many as were willing, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets, all jewels of gold. And every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. Everyone that offered gave a little bit of gold. And the things that are described, hey, listen, they didn't walk around with, with uh, gold coins. Everything that they gave was some piece of jewelry. Now, remember, they had left Egypt with only what they could carry. You know what that means? The jewelry they were given was the jewelry they were wearing. Every time they looked in a looking glass, they would see and perceive that whatever it was was missing. What I'm saying is this. They didn't grab something and dust it off out of the back drawer and say, well, I'll give God this. What they were giving, they would have noticed was gone. Now, this is strong meat, and you're only going to be able to receive it with grace. But I want you to be able to receive what I'm about to say to you. God does not measure our giving by what we give, but by what we have left. In other words, God doesn't measure our giving by the amount, but by the effect. And God doesn't uh, measure it by the, the fruitfulness of the amount, but by the feeling that it, that it uh, brings about in us of sacrifice and of giving and of yielding unto the Lord. Now you say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. Luke chapter 21 First four verses. Listen to what happened in Christ's earthly ministry. The Bible says, And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. Now, the farthing was the smallest normal common piece of, uh, of, of currency that they carried. And the Bible says in Matthew's account that two mites equals a farthing. So literally, this was like half of the, the, the smallest thing you were going to give. And the Bible says this, that Christ looked at his disciples and he said, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. Now, how could he say that? What does he mean? Well, remember how God dictates and judges the measure of a person's giving is different than us. We look at it and we ask what's in the plate. But God looks at it and he asks what's left in the coffers. We look at it and say, what can we do with it? But God looks at it and says, what has already been done by the act of giving? And listen to what he says. Uh, of a truth I say unto you, this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she of her penury, that means her poverty, uh, it says in Matthew's account of her want, hath cast in all the living that she had. Now here's the truth. God's blessed us all in different ways. I don't know everybody's financial situations in this room, but I would venture to say that there's probably in this room people more well off than me and people not as well off than me. But at the end of the day, we can all give to the Lord because none of that matters. What matters is, is not the abundance of what we give, but rather the, the effect that is felt uh, in our uh, financial well-being because we've given. If, you, if what you give to the Lord is not noticeable to you, then it's probably not noticeable to God. It's okay. We can all just enjoy this together. It's the truth now. That means this, that the poor man that puts in a tenth of what the rich man does, 
but it has a greater share and portion of his livelihood and well-being. God looks and honors that greater than the person that writes checks out of a bank account that they don't even know what the amount is in it because they don't have to and they don't care. Now, I don't say that to scorn those that God has blessed and that are well off. I say that to say this, that all of us, if we're giving and yielding unto the Lord with our hearts, we're going to do it in such a manner that when, when we give, God gets a piece of us. Because that's what He's driving at. He wants to get a piece of us. He wants us to be yielding unto Him. Look at verse number 25. Everybody can take a deep breath. We're past the tithing part. All right? We can all be friends again, right? Look down at verse 25. The Bible says this, And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. Let me say, number one, they gave their treasures from their hearts, but number two, they gave their talents from their heart. In other words, uh, there were certain things that these women could do, certain things that they could not do, certain things that others could do that these women could not do. But what they did was they took what talents God had given them and they employed them in the work and ministry of God. God has blessed all of us in different ways. That's one of the things I love about it. Hey, listen, a freedom-loving people should appreciate individuality. It's a mark of totalitarianism and tyranny to demand conformity in the human culture and experience. And this notion of just wiping everyone away into just a big gray mass where we don't have any, uh, any identity and any individualism, that runs contrary not only to the uh, law and ideals envisioned by our founders, but in a greater way because they model them off of, off of the truth, the Word of God. It, 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 it betrays and it moves away from the truth of God's Word that God has made each of us as individuals. Ain't no two people the same. Amen? You've heard people say it takes all kinds, right? A lot of times I'll say that about our church, because it does. It takes all kinds, and there's a lid for every pot. Everybody's different. These women, they had a certain talent that other people did not have, but they employed that talent to the work of God. Notice, first off, the diversity of their talents. Not everybody had the same skill set, but everybody had the same responsibility to employ that skill set in the work and labor of God. You may have a certain way that God has blessed you and enabled you, and you ought to be using that for the glory of God, whatever that may be. Hey, listen, uh, the, the, if you're good with mechanical stuff, uh, the, you ought to be fixing stuff for the glory of God. Good with numbers, you ought to be figuring them for the glory of God. Uh, good with musics and, in, and instruments, you ought to be playing them for the glory of God. Uh, whatever it might be, you ought to be employing that actively in the work of God. I don't just mean passively. I don't just mean looking for God's work in what we're already doing anyway. I mean actively employing our skills in the work of God. We ought to be laboring. There is a diversity of, of talents. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, verse 4 through 7, now Paul is talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's not lost on me. I understand that he's not talking necessarily about playing instruments or, or uh, fixing things or building things. But I do think there is an application here that is important uh, because it tells me this, that this is the way that God has created us as human beings, not just speaking of spiritual gifts, but about all the talents that God blesses us with. And listen to what Paul says about uh, the gifts that God has blessed the church with. He says in verse 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are uh, differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man, and notice these last three words, to profit with all. When it says to profit with all, it means to the benefit and glory of God and to the benefit of the cause of Christ. 
Uh, don't you understand, and, and we ought to, we ought to really be mindful of this. When God's blessed us with a talent, He truly has blessed us. I don't know if you realize this, but that thing that you think is no big deal, there's somebody in this world that give uh, their right eye to be able to do what you can do. Whatever it is that you think ain't no big deal, there's somebody to give anything if they could do it the way that you do it. You may say, preacher, I'm not the best at it. doesn't matter. God's blessed you head and shoulders above other people. Hey, listen, there's certain people, and I always think that God's blessed our church in the music area. And, you know, I, I plunk around on the guitar a little bit, but our musicians are so incredibly talented. And one of the things that I hope is never lost on them is that the people sit out in the pews, and I hope they glorify God, but one thing that I promise crosses their mind from time to time, and you can give me a hearty, hearty amen if this ever crossed your mind, I bet you there's people sitting in this congregation that have thought, boy, I wish I could play like that. Well, I wish I could do that. Some of you probably had piano lessons when you were young. You've, you've sat there and thought, boy, I wish I'd stuck with it. Boy, I wish I'd labored with it. I wish I could serve God the way that those musicians are serving God now. Well, listen, I don't know whether you'll ever be able to play the piano or not. Uh, my preacher used to tell a, a story about a fellow that went to the doctor, had surgery on his arm, and uh, the doctor said, you know, do you have any questions? He said, well, doctor, am I still going to be able, or he said, am I going to be able to play piano after the surgery? Uh, and he said, I see no reason why you uh, shouldn't be able to. And he said, well, that's good, because I can't play right now. You know? You may never be able to play the piano. You may never be able to minister and serve in that way. But wherever God has blessed you, however God has blessed you, you ought to be investing it in the work of God. And then notice the diligence of their talents. It was hard work what they did, but they did it their absolute best. This is a verse that I don't think is quoted often enough to God's people. Listen to what, Paul, or what uh, David said in Psalms 33. Verses 2 through 3. It says, Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto Him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto Him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. Now, that's not to say this, that the house of God ought to be a talent show. But it is to say that whatever we set our hand to do in the work of God, we ought to do it to the best of our ability. Whatever it is. We shouldn't, we shouldn't do anything half-heartedly. Everything should be to the best of our ability. And God's metric is not the result. God's metric is the investment. God's metric is the emphasis we place upon it. If we'll place our best foot forward and we'll lay our hand to the task, God will be pleased with it. Well, then I want you to notice verse 26. The Bible says, And all the women whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hairs. What are we going to say about that verse? All the women that could, they spun Goat's hairs. Let me say this to you. We ought to give our treasures from the heart and our talents from the heart. But we ought to be willing to give our time from the heart. Now, this is what I mean when I say that. I want you to consider for a moment the nature of their work. There's two groups of women here. Some women who are very uh, talented and capable are taking blue and scarlet and purple. And they're weaving and they're making these beautiful curtains that adorn the tabernacle. And they're setting their hand to that task. And no doubt people that walked by and observed what was being done there probably oohed and awed about how beautiful these things were that they were making. And then here's these girls over in the corner spinning goat hair. And goat hair is goat hair. And it don't matter how you spin goat hair, goat hair still looks like goat hair. Amen? And yet we find something about the nature of their work. One, it wasn't elaborate. And it wasn't exciting. Nobody was going to fawn over the work they were doing. Nobody was going to stand back from that big old curtain of goat hair and say, Oh, how beautiful that, that curtain of goat hair is. No doubt it was going to be ugly. And it was meant to be. In many ways it typified the human uh, experience and suffering of Christ. 
but for them, just practically speaking, this was probably not the work that people would have ideally wanted to do. But they invested their time, and they did the work just the same. Here's the truth of the matter. There are a handful of, of works and, and jobs and tasks in the local church and in the ministry of God that will garner you the praise and attention of men. Something you'll learn after spending a little time in God's work is this, that the vast majority of the important work being done is not the work that people clap for and is not the work that people recognize and honor. That is a part of it. And, of course, both of them must be done. But the truth is, even if you can't do any of those things, you might not be able to make beautiful curtains, but you can at least spin goat hair. You can at least invest your time. Maybe doing something no one else wants to do. Maybe doing something no one else is interested in doing. But there's always a work to do, be it cleaning, be it laboring, be it fixing, whatever it is. There's all, I promise you, this is true not only of our local uh, church and the work being done here, but this is true in the work of God. Hey, listen, if you're looking for something to do, get out and start handing out tracts. I promise you're not going to have to push people out of the way to be able to get to people's doors to hand out tracts. You're not going to have to show up and wait in line with eight or ten Christians in front of you knocking on the door first. It's not necessarily an exciting thing, though you'll find you get out knocking on doors, you'll have some exciting moments. But it's something that most people don't want to do. But here's the reality. Person after person could witness and testify that they were saved because somebody knocked on their door and handed them a gospel track. It, the nature of their work wasn't elaborate, it wasn't exciting, but I want you to notice the necessity of their work. It had to be done. In fact, you know what? This curtain of goat hair, it completed the work. It was the last thing that was placed on the tabernacle. The work wasn't done until they were done. And you know, the truth of the matter is this. If you don't labor and toil, all of us, we don't invest our time and energy, whether it's exciting and, and public and, and, and uh, uh, exalts uh, us and, and uh, exudes praise from people, whatever it is, whether it's that or whether it's just something that is menial and arduous and boring, the work won't get done until we've invested our time. And that's true of the sensational and that's true of the mundane. It completed the work. And then I want you to notice it covered the work. So the reason that this covering of goat's hair was on the tabernacle was to protect the more beautified work that was underneath it from the elements. If they had just put that fine linen on there, it would have looked beautiful, but it wouldn't have lasted very long. The thing that gave longevity to the tabernacle was the goat hair that these women had spun. You know what? The meat and the potatoes of ministry is not the exciting part, but it's the faithfulness and diligence of God's people to do the work that's necessary, to do the work that's needful. As we raise our families and seek to influence our kids for the glory of God, hey, listen, it's easy sometimes to look at a Wednesday night. We're tired. We're weary. We've been beat down at work all day. We just want to stay at the house. But I want you to know that God does more of the, of the hard work, of the serious work in our families on these Wednesday nights than He ever does on Sunday morning. The truth is, the reason the devil fights it so hard is because that's what's so necessary. We need to be diligent. As you read through your Bible, and I trust many of you are reading through your Bible this year, and as you read through your Bible, those places where it gets a little bit laborious and a little bit difficult, uh, those are the very places where we learn the fundamentals and principles of who God is and what He's doing. We can look at it and disdain it as goat's hair, but the truth is the fine linen can't survive without the goat's hair. We need to stay diligent. We need to stay busy. 